You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And uh, Glenn, a little factoid for today, since we're going to be focusing in on British Columbia, comes from British Columbia, uh, there was a lawsuit recently filed uh, last October by a man named Todd Standing. And uh, he has accused the provincial government of damaging his livelihood and credibility by, quote, non-recognition of Sasquatch. <laughs> that sounds about right, actually. Uh, <laughs> he, he is a uh, self-proclaimed Sasquatch tracker who claims that the province has, quote, breached its stewardship responsibility by failing to recognize and protect the legendary creature. I assume uh, he has a lot of stock in Jack Link's Beef Jerky Company, too. <laughs> He, he actually offers uh, for, oh, let's see if I can find it, for a mere $4,800 U.S., a, quote, breathtaking adventure in the Canadian wilderness, where you uh. can also uh, go on a week-long expedition searching for the Sasquatch that must be your group when you go for the $4,800. Your group is going to be the one that finally finds it. I, I guarantee it. Or at least uh, Sasquatch uh, stat. <laughs> Mmm, <laughs> yum. All right, so um, like we uh, the past couple episodes, Glenn and I are Se- reached out. Selling out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Eric and Glenn sell out. <laughs> um, so uh, we we have reached out to a few different organizations that are helping to uh, sponsor the Double Loop podcast with your help as a listener. So uh, first thing I want to mention uh, is uh, Audible. The Double Loop podcast is brought to you in part by Audible. Audible offers listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Uh, so just go to audibletrial.com slash double loop, and you can browse all sorts of just thousands and thousands of audiobooks. So when you get tired and run out of episodes of the Double Loop podcast to listen to, you can just switch on over to Audible and listen to your favorite books online. So uh, the other one is the California Wine Club. Uh, Their original wine club level features artisan family wineries with award-winning California wines made in small batches. So every month um, after you sign up, you uh, will get uh, two bottles of wine delivered to your door. The Premier Series level features uh, two artisanal wines from a new winery, not only Napa and Sonoma, but also places like Monterey, Mendocino, and uh, Santa Barbara. Or you can look at their international series, which might include a Malbec from Argentina, a Bordeaux from France, or a Riesling from Germany. Um, And each delivery can bring a new country and a new small family winery, some with histories dating back hundreds of years. So when you sign up at cawineclub.com, when you check out in the promo code box, just put double loop. And again, that will help uh, these companies uh, sponsor the double loop podcast so we can uh, you know, continue to improve and bring you more and more quality latent print, fingerprint-related podcast stuff. So, Glenn, um, yes, why don't you, we, we have a very special guest on today. Why don't you introduce uh, our guest uh, this week to the listeners? 
Right. Uh, so it is my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Della Wilkinson to the Double Loop podcast. Hello, Della. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Eric. Welcome, and welcome. Della, uh, you and I met, if I recall, it was in Ottawa in 2003 at the IAI. I had given a presentation on uh, on Harry Potter and Leighton Fingerprints. <laughs> And uh, you were in the audience, and I remember you came up afterwards and said, hi, I'm a Harry Potter fan. I'm also a <laughs> fingerprint fan. Yep. And I also think that I did actually know the answer to one of your questions. Which you was, did. Uh, the answer was the boggart, but I can't yes. remember the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe it was something along the lines of what was the creature that was in, uh, you know, Lupus's uh, trunk, you know, in, in the episode where uh, they have to face their fears or something along those yeah, lines. And yeah. you... You knew it right away. Won a little treat or a little prize I was handing. I don't remember what it was, but I was it giving was out. It was a chocolate frog. I oh, will chocolate never frog. forget it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and who was the wizard card that you got in your chocolate frog? I can't. I didn't remember that. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> I'm obviously more focused on the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and I, for anyone that knows, I used to do these uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts lectures. And I, I still do, still bring, I've still done a couple of them. Uh, and they're always a fun way for me to uh, tackle a complex latent print concept or controversial concept, but do it more in a fun way that invokes the milieu of the Harry Potter world. And that was my first introduction to Della. And then for years, we've worked on things together. We've talked about latent print issues. We've been a part of several committees. Uh, you were a member of SwigFast, and now you're a member of OSAC and the Canadian Friction Ridge Group. Uh, you're a member of the International Fingerprint Research Group, IFRG, and I'm a member of that. Uh, just over the years, we've had so many wonderful collaborations and shares. And I'll, I'll share one little story. Uh, when I presented at one of the IFRG meetings in Australia, I had just conducted some research on bloody prints, and you asked a, such a great question that at the end, you asked me about the mechanism and some additional testing, which I hadn't done. And, I, and while up there in front of everyone, I realized, oh my God, that's a great idea. I really need to do that additional research. And I stopped my publication, went and did the additional research answered your question, which you were right on point and what you had asked was exactly right. And I was able to add that into the article and continue the publication. But you turned me in a different direction because you asked such good research questions. And I've always loved your uh, analytical research mind. Uh, you have such a, a great uh, research mind and ask such great questions, Della. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to contribute. Yeah, I mean, over the years, you've done so much in the research community. So it's uh, it's it, it, it is really a pleasure having you on here, and then getting into uh, tonight's topic. You know how you uh, how you uh, got involved in the latent print comparison side of things, so to speak. Yeah, that's uh, not an area that I ever thought I'd end up working in. When I joined the RCMP, I was always more focused because I'm a chemist focused on the detection side um, and the chemistry of fingerprints. But having got involved in SwigFast and actually was participating in one of David Ashbaugh's um, advanced radiology training classes that really piqued my interest in the, the other side of what happens once a fingerprint has been detected. 
it's fun, isn't it? Oh yeah. <laughs> Comparisons. <laughs> well, as as is tradition, when we have uh, you know guests on the podcast, I, we do need to ask how you you came uh, from a chemistry background to get into you know specifically latent prints. Uh, but also, um, I, I do believe I'm detecting the, a non-traditional Canadian accent. Uh, is it a yes. Newfie accent? <laughs> I'm actually about mid-Atlantic now. Okay. <laughs> 50% Canadian. So, uh, yeah, you're quite right. I'm, I was born and educated in the UK. Uh, came to Canada to do a postdoc at the National Research Council. Okay. And um, Ended up if just you want to know... Ended well. There's always a man, right? So I, uh, I did marry a Canadian, and before I'd left the UK, I had applied to the Royal Society for an award, a fellowship to study uh, to continue my work in Canada, which I was fortunate to to receive. Uh, when I arrived at the National Research Council, they already had salary for me which was, was wonderful. So I was able to delay my Royal Society Award and eventually used it to move into a more applied area of chemistry, which was with the Canadian Police Research Centre, which was an umbrella group between the technical world of NRC and the policing world of the RCMP. And they, their mandate was to try and provide technological and scientific solutions to policing problems. I knocked on the door and I had a year's worth of salary, so uh, they they definitely opened the door. <laughs> the rest is history. Very interesting. And how long have you been there? In Canada? Yeah. Oh, or at the at the RCMP. So I've been with the RCMP as a an employee the early two thousands, but I've worked as an NRC scientist on law enforcement problems since the mid nineteen nineties. Okay. So when I met you in 2003, you were really fairly new to RCMP. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd sort of worked on solely their their projects for about eight years by then. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I did know the people, um, but it was all in the detection side. And we were working on trying to recover fingerprints from the skin of a homicide victim. Um mm. It was very interesting research, and I soon became addicted to the forensic world. Well, um, I, I know, especially up in Canada, so there are some of the leading researchers in uh, developing prints, uh, latent prints on on human skin. And um, right. one of the recent uh, Twitter posts I made, uh, you can follow us at Double Loop Pod, but uh, related to <laughs> um, the old. Uh, Michael Mann movie, uh, Manhunter from the mid eighties. Mm. So I, I've been dying to ask, uh, you know, people who've got more experience than I do in processing human skin in the movie, uh, they feature developing latent prints on a toenail. Um, <laughs> and then, which I am thinking, eh, maybe like, eh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. But then the real kicker was the, uh, cornea, uh, a thumbprint on the cornea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of pushing it. That's pushing it. Um, yeah, we recommended that obviously if it's a, a child victim, then the chances of success would improve because you're looking for the lipids that are present in adults, which are not yet produced by oh. pre-pubescent children. 
Um, and obviously, if someone had been moved um, at some point after death, then those are the cases that we were trying to look at as possible improved chances of success. But no, no corneas, huh? No corneas. And I'm so glad you didn't ask me about the movie because that's one thing when you're an immigrant, you have no knowledge of, oh. you know, media and like TV. It's <laughs> Got it. It was uh, Manhunter was the, uh, the first uh, movie featuring uh, Hannibal Lecter. It was the, uh, kind of the, the one that came out just a couple of years before Silence of the Lambs. Um, that was very much overshadowed by Silence of the Lambs. So, well, all right, I've learned something. Well, yeah, let's get into the actual interview, though. Yes, let's let's uh, allow our our listeners to learn something. Uh, Della, we've asked you to come on to talk about the uh, the uh, the Bornick case, and that's B O R N Y K. If anyone wants to Google it and follow along at home, if you're playing along at the on the home home version of the Double Loop podcast. And uh, Della, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the the timeline because you got involved later. Uh, if I understand, on a retrial. But why don't you walk us through the original trial and some of the crazy events, which we talked about in a previous podcast. And maybe, Eric, at some point, if you look it up, you can get the exact episode we talked about the original uh, trial. Actually, it, it's episode number 10, because go. I Beautiful. did listen to it last night. <laughs> 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 Excellent. I, I love a guest that has done research. That's That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, episode 10, everybody. <laughs> All right, so yeah, walk, walk us through, Della. Okay, so this was in relation to a break and enter at a residence in uh, British Columbia in the area of uh, Surrey, which is a suburb of Vancouver. It was in 2010, I think July, uh, two fingerprint uh, RCMP members attended, and they recovered a single fingerprint from a collectible doll. I think it was uh, living dead dolls or something. Yeah, I remember some being some sort of like zombie doll packaging yeah, or something. Yeah, it was... They're, yeah. they're like highly sexualized goth dolls for children. <laughs> they're very, very strange. I, I know these because I've seen these monster high dolls, and yes, they're they're like girl zombie, like sexy zombie, sexy mummy, sexy goth dolls. <laughs> so... That was in July 2010. A fingerprint was recovered on one of these dolls and it was developed and um, submitted to the APHIS system. It didn't hit in the original um, search, but it did at a later time uh, through a reverse search. The known and the latent were compared by Brad Warbeck, who's a fingerprint examiner with the RCMP, and mm-hmm. he came to the conclusion that the latent and the known were made by the same individual, and that was okay. identified to Mr. Bornick. Um, okay. And went, that went to trial 2013, where Judge Funked had – he was a new judge, and um, he did some of his own research um, and pulled documents into the court that had not been introduced by the defense or the Crown. Um, and he also did his own comparison of the fingerprint after. <laughs> and if I remember, he, yeah. he, uh, he, he just did his own research like overnight. Like, yeah, it was kind of uh, the next day he called the Crown and the defense into his chambers and presented them with these four four reports. 
the NIST report, the NES report, the fingerprint inquiry, and an article by Simon Cole. Mm -hmm. The Crown had um, some time, but not a lot of time to respond. And they produced a couple of reports of their own. And that's what he used to base his, you know, to educate himself about fingerprints. Uh, just to enter in here for one moment, I mean, obviously in American jurisprudence, this would consider, be considered um, inappropriate, <laughs> I assume in Canadian <laughs> as well, that you can only basically make a decision off of the evidence that's been introduced by either side, not necessarily your own feelings, research, etc. I mean, same, yeah. same law? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically that was grounds for appeal. And the appeal was but heard I, in... How would he have yeah. not have known this? I mean, how, how, I understand he's new, <laughs> but you still have to understand the basics of criminal law. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I cannot speak to sure. um, the judiciary. Um, <laughs> okay. the, for sure, <laughs> the appeal courts disagreed quite strenuously. And they, there's a lovely quote that... The judge, this is quoting from the appeal, the judge erred in locating and using material that was in the nature of opinion, but was not evidence in the trial. By doing so, he effectively assumed the multifaceted role of advocate, witness and judge. Um, (laughs) So they, yeah, they weren't happy with that. That is such a quaint and educated burn. (laughs) I mean, It's not. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, that, that speaks to the very heart of the matter. Um, but it's, I'm, I'm again, I understand they have to be very professional. I'm just sitting back going, how, how could he not know that? Uh, how it seems impossible that he wouldn't know this. And then and and there's now I'm really breaking script a little bit, but uh, is, is, he wasn't trying to make a name for himself or draw attention or this wasn't like a like, a, you know, he wasn't. Trying, he had no mission here, right? I, I again, I, I can't really speak to his motivation. Um, sure. I can, as as an individual with a curious mind, appreciate that you're sitting in this court and you're hearing this technical expert evidence, and you'd kind of want to educate yourself if it was the first time you'd actually had to weigh this kind of evidence in a legal decision. Um, I see, but yeah. You, and and if you it is what it is if you um you know begin your latent print education with the NAS report the um the mm-hmm. the Scotland McKee fingerprint inquiry re- yeah. uh, report uh and Simon Cole's book you know i i can see reaching you know this kind of conclusion based on just those writings i think the, you know the main problem is mm-hmm. obviously not not continuing on and continuing that education with, you know, a lot of the other information that's, that was out at the time. Yeah. I mean, it would be great to have a review article or book on for each of the forensic disciplines for the legal community, right? That was just a very concise, factual review of the pros and the cons and the different things for the legal community to be aware of. Yeah, you know, there is a book called, I think, Scientific Evidence in the United States written by lots of different authors. We'd know their names, David Stoney, David Fagman, um, various people who 
you know, are sort of on the, a little bit on the edge of they might have a legal background or a scientific background or they team up where you've got some a scientist and, uh, you know, and a lawyer. And, and it's exactly what you're describing, Della, where, you know, although, again, it's some I think Andre Moensen's wrote some of it, too. So you've got folks who are knowledgeable about the legal aspect as well as the, the current issues. But you're, you're right. I mean, th- that's what I would want a lawyer looking at. And it would have to be updated annually with all the new issues and new research and so on, and which I think they try to update every four to five years or so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that they've got quite a like a four volume version on statistics and interpretation of statistical evidence. But again, it's it's very challenging for all of us to keep up with this huge amount yeah. of information yeah. Right, yeah. that's always coming through. Yep, absolutely. So the the judge uh, in this case then ruled the fingerprint evidence inadmissible in that first trial, right? Yeah, well, he did his own fingerprint comparison after, you know, accepting the fingerprint expert or the fingerprint examiner as an expert. And the appeal court also had an issue with with that because they felt that, you know, fingerprint evidence does require expert elucidation and he, he was not an expert. So that was the second grounds for um, the verdict to be set right. aside. Yeah, but he acquitted, and then the appeal court said, no, we feel that you've erred uh, in legal judgment, and we will set a new trial, which happened January of 2017. And that's when I became involved um, in the case. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, Eric and I seemed pretty astounded about this case, and our only, our, I just recall our conviction was, this has to be overturned. There, there's no way this will stay as it is. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously that's a Crown decision and the RCMP were very hopeful that the Crown would decide to appeal. We felt that this was not good case law to have, you know, in effect in Canada. And we definitely wanted the chance to answer some of Judge Funk's concerns and um, address the these issues. Uh, so the, the second trial... Uh, just from you know reading the uh, kind of outline short version of it looked to be a whole bigger deal than the first one yes yes it was it was uh, six days of court um, I was on the stand for a day and a bit Simon Cole was called as a defense witness the verifier was called to testify which doesn't usually happen in Canadian courts so yeah it was uh, it was a whole lot more going on. So, Della, two quick questions here. What do you guys call your admissibility hearings? You know, in the states, we call them Daubert or Fry. What do you? What What is your law around that? And then, secondly, is this is this the first real challenge that Canada had to the admissibility of fingerprints? So, the first question it's called a voir dire, and oh. it ty- typically happens before the trial, the real trial starts. It's the the judge right. or the jury or the judge makes a decision as to whether the evidence is um, required, I guess, and meets the standard. We have Mohan is our standard for expert evidence testimony. Yeah, Mohan. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very similar to Dorbert. And the second question, I've forgotten already. <laughs> uh, was this the first <laughs> act, real challenge to the admissibility of fingerprints in Canada? Right. Yes, it was. 
Yeah. And hmm. it was... Uh, oh, wow. It was the first time... No, the first trial was the first time fingerprint evidence had not been accepted based on the, I guess, the criticisms that have been leveled against uh, fingerprint practice. Had it gone through this voir dire process under the Mohan standard Um, before? I don't think so. And I'm really speaking beyond my expertise here because I haven't studied a lot of case law. But I've never, when I was editor of Identification Canada, um, we often would publish case law summaries. Okay. And during the 10 years that I did that, I was never made aware of a fingerprint case that had been rejected by the courts. Yeah, my, my recollection right, right. was that the specter of Mohan had been raised a couple of times in some cases, but never really went. Uh, that, that's just my recollection from a few examiners that, you know, the issue had come up, but they never they never had the hearing, the case settled or some other things happened. So it never my recollection was it never really happened before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think it was the first. I mean, it, it reverberated across the country. When yeah. this decision came out, we were all quite surprised because partly because <laughs> the quality of the fingerprint was very high. Yeah. And, right, uh, right. It didn't really seem like a questionable, you know, a difficult comparison. Well, for the it, judge it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't know what you're looking for, you know, um, in in this case, uh, Della, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the strategy that was used? You know, um, you know what witnesses were testifying, who was the defense expert, and how did the order of things go? So um, they were all of the witnesses that could testify to the fact that the house hadn't been disturbed and all that, uh, the sort of general witnesses. And then the fingerprint examiner testified for quite some time. Um the strategy was to talk about our proficiency tests. Well, actually, if I can wind back a bit, the PCAST yeah. report was published a couple weeks before the trial, and we were aware that we would be testifying and Dr. Simon Cole would be testifying for the defense. So we actually adopted a lot of the recommendations from the PCAST report in the way we presented our evidence. Because we were aware, having read a lot of Simon Cole's articles, that he has been asking for an independent scientific body to review fingerprint practices for quite some time without, you know, forensic practitioners or, you know, just to have a scientific body do that review. And mm-hmm. PCAST kind of was that. They were, you know, highly credentialed scientists without any direct connection to forensics. And they concluded that fingerprint evidence on comparisons were scientifically foundationally valid. So we thought that was a reasonable strategy. So in Brad Warback's testimony, he focused on talking about the proficiency tests that he had undergone, um, that his bench notes were made before he looked at the known, that he Mm -hmm. assessed the quality and the quantity of information in the fingerprint using SWIGFAST's quality table and sufficiency graft. Mm -hmm. He talked about his awareness of of erroneous identifications and the error rates that studies have 
you know, been undertaken to establish a generic error rate for the discipline um, without verification. And mm-hmm. he emphasized that his evidence was opinion evidence, not categorical fact. And he did acknowledge sure. the possibility of error. So that was basically his testimony. Um, then he went under cross-examination and the, the defense were really interested in dissimilarities, which were, had been a big concern of Justice Funk because there is a ridge in the core, at the delta area of the fingerprint where there's some breaks, yeah. which could easily be explained by a fingerprint expert. But by right. according to a layperson's perspective, Judge Funk couldn't reconcile those gaps. And under redirect... Corporal Wolbeck was able to speak, and actually because we've disclosed the images of the Madrid bombing and the Mackay impressions, he was able to actually Uh show them to the judge and say, well, this is the difference in quality. Um, Oh, that's a great idea. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was very effective because... He actually, when he was under cross-examination, he'd said to the defense lawyer, um, I can show you those impressions, I have them. And, and obviously that that was not a direction that the defense wanted to go in. So, <laughs> yeah. so they moved along. But uh, the crown was very sharp. Adam Yontanen was the BC Crown Counsel, and he jumped right in and, and said, well, actually, let's have a look at those impressions. Right, so apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah, which was very good, like really allowed me when I gave my testimony to speak about, you know, how error rates are not really relevant to the case at hand. We have these studies that look in error rates, but the case at hand, it's, you know, it's completely different quality of fingerprint. And so, yeah, Brad's testimony was excellent. He did a, he did a fantastic job. And I actually testified right after him. My job was to... Hold, hold, hold that thought for, for one second. Just have a couple of quick questions. Um, one, you mentioned that this was six days long, but you also mentioned that all the witnesses and people who talk about the condition of the house and other things. So this isn't just the fingerprint experts. It's almost like a mini trial. My understanding is there are other witnesses besides just oh yeah the experts. So yeah, there was. Yeah, okay. So that's quite different than in the U.S. If we have a Daubert hearing, it's just the experts talking about the, uh, the, uh, the scientific validity of the evidence. It sounds like it's a little different than there in Canada for that purpose. Yeah, and the, I mean, in this trial, they had the real estate agent, they had the homeowners, and they had the patrol officer that was securing the property before the forensic ident people came. And and, th- and this was all part of voir dire, not the actual trial part. No, I think I don't think there was a voir dire for this um, uh, for the I trial. See. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I so I all this testimony okay. was in the main body of the trial. trial. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That that makes so much more sense. I just thought six days for essentially <laughs> a, an, an admissibility here. Now this makes more sense. Okay. So all the other witnesses were. This was all retrial. Yes. Got it. Okay. Got got that. And Sorry then the, if I the, led you down the wrong path. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just wanted the, cl- the clarification. And then the other thing, uh, we'll probably get in this a little bit when you start talking about the error rates, but you, you make a really interesting point that I want to go back to. When you say that they're not applicable at the case at hand, you mean this case at hand because of the quality of the fingerprint. In other words, this was an easy fingerprint as opposed to maybe the data from some of the studies that might deal with more difficult examinations. I mean, that 
right? I just want to make sure that's what you're saying as opposed to you can't use general error rate studies to make any estimates about the specific case at hand, which is, you know, a very famous statistical debate. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the high quality of this impression. And we only talked about the FBI study and the Miami-Dade study in this Mm -hmm. trial, because that was the studies that PCAST had um, referenced right? uh, with regards to foundational validity. Right. So, um, and and that was your testimony. So, if you want to get into, you sure. know, what you, what you were what you were there for. Yeah. So basically, my job was to talk about the published science that has been, you know, put out there since the criticisms from the NES report. So I started because of what happened in the first trial. And coincidentally, this was also a paper that you discussed in your um, episode 10 of your podcast. I talked about the Tangen study from oh, yeah. Australia uh-huh. um, and about how, you know, identifying fingerprint expertise, fingerprint examiners do possess genuine expertise compared to lay pers- the lay person, right. but they're not infallible, right? They did make right. three three errors, I think, in the close non-match, condi- you know, experiment. Right. For the for the listeners, it was a study done in Australia that looked at uh, lay people uh, doing fingerprint comparisons, their error rates, and compared them to experts, finger Australian fingerprint experts. And the error rates were vastly different. I mean, just off the top of my head, if I think for the experts, it was 0.7 percent False positive yes. rate for the uh, for the experts and maybe seven point five or something false negatives, but for the lay people, it was <laughs> a whopping fifty five percent, fifty five percent false positive error rate, and then uh, was it twenty twenty five percent for the uh, uh, for the false negatives? I can't I can't remember the false negatives, but we did make the point that you'd send just as just as good a chance of getting it right if you flipped a coin exactly. compared to the late exactly. people. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. So I, I agree, Abdallah. That is a great study to bring up. And because not only that, it admonishes the judge a little bit from the first one that says, this is why you should not have done that. Well, it was more um, in our strategy to say the expert that you've just heard is giving a decision that you should value. And there is yeah. evidence to demonstrate that. Yeah, right. So then, of but, course, but, we, but I like, but I like your point. Not infallible, which we're not saying they they do make mistakes sometimes. Yeah, but far vastly fewer mistakes than a layperson. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think a lot of critics really believe that the original trial was correct. That was how it should have happened. The judge should have heard the expertise of the fingerprint examiner, but then should have been allowed to make his own judgment, his own comparison. And we hear that all the time of critics saying, don't come in and say identification, just come in, present your your markup, and then let the jury, well, in this case, there wasn't a jury, it was just a judge, let the jury look at the things that you've presented and then decide for themselves. And it's, it's demonstrably wrong to do that and would lead to all sorts of problems because it it does take a lot of training to get good at this. Yeah. Yeah. And in my 
sort of layperson's like I'm not a fingerprint expert or I'm not a fingerprint examiner. So I feel that everybody in the justice system, the people participating in giving evidence and the people criticizing the people giving evidence, we should all be striving to prevent the overstatement of evidence and yes. also the understatement or the yes. undervaluing of evidence. And I, I feel that Paper by Tangent does a wonderful job at just saying, yep. let the experts do their jobs. They're qualified to do yep. this if they're trained to competency they should be able to be qualified as an expert. Yeah, and, and I think that we've heard in, in previous uh, episodes where we've had some jury study discussions and some experts on juror studies that the the judge or the, the fact finder's role is not to really doubt the identification so much, but then to consider, so what does this mean in this case? If it's just mm-hmm. simply an identification Without any other supporting details, is that enough for a conviction? Or do you need the other details? Do you need some narrative about the location of the fingerprint and where it was and alibis and past history and all these other things that a juror wants to make a decision? That's beyond the purview of the expert. It's not about doubting their conclusions, but it's about, okay, now if we accept this as an identification, so what? What does this mean or actually prove in this case? And that's their job. They should be focused on. Yep. I then obviously spoke about the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology report Mm -hmm. um, and what was meant by foundational validity and valid as applied. We talked about the fact that, you know, they use two black box studies to create, you know, to assess the accuracy of fingerprint examiners. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about the false positive rates from those black box studies. And I guess another thing that was very helpful to us as we were preparing just in January, the very early I'm not sure if it was early December or early January, but the OSAC Friction Ridge Subcommittee published its response to the PCAST report. Yep. You know, they had a number of concerns that we were able to articulate in the courtroom because we had done our own research and kind of arrived at those conclusions. But it was very nice to be able to reference something from such a highly respected group of fingerprint examiners. So we talked about the false positive rates from the Black Book studies, that they're actually quite low. And the rates that we were talking about did not include verification. So it was in mm-hmm. a measure of complete practice. Sure. Uh, also, one, one other technical question for you, Della. When you, uh, di- uh, when you presented these, did you discuss it all or point up a nuance of the keeping the inconclusive versus throwing it out? And what... And how did you handle that? I mean, I've run into that very recently in a couple of hearings I've been in, and I feel that I have to spend a lot of time discussing the keep the inconclusives versus throw them out issue. So in practice in Canada, inconclusive is not considered an error. So mm-hmm. if you do, you know, in proficiency testing, if you call something an inconclusive, it's not considered an error, but if you're calling inconclusives on highly, you know, high clarity prints with large, you know, a high number of minutiae, then that would be considered a training issue. Okay. So in this error rate studies, we followed what PCAST actually did, which was to exclude 
the inconclusives from errors. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that made things easier because then you didn't have to get into the distinction between the two. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, we tried to keep the error rate data very, very simple and very high level because, you know, it's difficult to get that, convey that in a courtroom. Yeah. To the board. That might not have. Yeah. (laughs) I guess my second question here is when you presented the error rate data, did you give the one-sided interval or did you guys do a recalculation to have a two-sided interval? So we gave the data as it was presented in the studies. And in the FBI black box study, it was presented as a two-sided confidence interval. We did discuss the fact that in the PCAS report, they represented it as a one-sided confidence interval. Although, you know, that's totally valid and correct to present information in that way. We felt that it could be misleading to the to the courts. Yes, because I think the the way that the data was expressed in the Miami Dade, I think it was like a one in twenty four error rate, four point two percent. Yes, but the way that PCOS had presented it turned it into a one in eighteen. Yes, at, at the upper bound. Yes, the upper bound. So if you really want to discuss statistics and error rates, I should recommend that you have Daniel Hockey, a colleague of mine, mm. on the uh, on the Double Loop podcast because he's – um... Time out a second. <laughs> you said – did you say Daniel Hockey? Yes. He, he's, a Canadian, he's a Canadian. He's a Canadian. He works at RCMP <laughs> in Canada That's and his great. last name is Hockey? <laughs> yes. Is that <laughs> – is that Sergeant Hockey or Corporal? <laughs> that is that is Mr. Hockey. Mr. Hockey, okay. He better Mr. have hockey. Uh, the hockey hair to go with it, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, Daniel, I should acknowledge that Daniel has been working with the RCMP for an, a few years now. And he's a statistician that works in our research group. And he was wonderful in helping to prepare for this uh, trial because he's the statistician and yeah he could you know he could really help clarify the messaging around the the error rates right, right. You, you know you 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 touch on something here that I think is important for all the listeners because you even said it earlier the, the listeners have to understand that there are different ways to compute these error rates. None of them are necessarily wrong. They are different conventions. Mm-hmm. You can look at these statistics many different ways, depending on what your focus is or what your assumptions are. They're not wrong to do it a certain way, but we have one convention, I think, from a professional perspective. For example, inconclusives matter. They're a valid conclusion. And then PCAS is another way, but there, there's multiple ways to look at these statistics. None of them are wrong. You just have mm-hmm. to understand the differences between them and what assumptions are being made and what's being either included or excluded. And that's that, that you're right. That's where a statistician would be very helpful. And Eric, maybe we should. We, we could do a special content episode with this, uh, this statistician. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, it comes out in talking about specificity and sensitivity, which is what everybody seems like everybody else in science is concerned with. But that's just how often you find the answer, 
Like how often do you make an ID or make an exclusion? And we can't always do that, you know, with the information that we're given. So even though that's, that's what all the other scientists are concerned about, we really don't care how often we can make an ID when it's the same source. We care about when we make an ID, how often are we right? And uh, yeah. that's a big, mm-hmm. big break. And it's got to be a big mindset change for everybody coming from the, the testing side of science to forensic side of science. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for listeners that really know this stuff, you know, these error rates, I mean, sensitivity and specificity tell you the efficiency of the method. How good is the method at doing this type of conclusion? Whereas, like you said, positive predictive value, negative predictive value is how good is this examiner at making these conclusions or this group of examiners? Making and they're it correct, different. I mean, they're accurately. Making it correctly, right. There's subtle differences but this is where the advanced statistics kind of comes out and probably more than the average listener cares about. But uh, you're absolutely right, Eric. And they're uh, knowing what these statistics tell us and what they don't and when to use them, when not to. And these are these are subtleties that examiners, unfortunately, these days have to start learning. Yeah. Della, as you're making it pretty yeah. clear. Because you can't testify in every one of these hearings and you never know when a, a trial will come up and these issues come up. But these are things examiners kind of have to start learning. Well, one of the things that we tried to do in the Bonnet case, always it was the fingerprint, the fingerprint and the case at hand that was guiding our testimony. And sure. we had a very high quality, high quantity impression that we, you know, basically argued, you know, would be very hard for us to make an error on. So one of the things that has come out of Bornick is this idea of kind of looking at when, what is the threshold in the RCMP when we don't make errors? Because, you know, that's like, that's kind of an interesting thing for us to know. It would help us guide us in when we need certain additional quality assurance measures for our fingerprint mm-hmm. examiners to follow. Yep. Um, so we're actually doing um, some work on that right now. You know, we should have, you know, every fingerprint examiner is going to be doing this uh, this proficiency test and, and we'll eventually have an idea of, okay, this is a threshold. And when you're above this threshold, you you're in an area where we've demonstrated we don't make errors. I'd be a little careful with that because it's it's a little more complicated. If you look at especially the Miami-Dade study where they did a lot more relationships of the number of minutiae to the errors, I think it's even in the black or the white box as well. The number of bad IDs when you're down at like eight points and fewer is like almost none. And then when you kind of get into the medium range, 9 to 15, there's the most. And then there's only a couple when you get like 16 and more. So it's it's like people aren't, people aren't making these bad IDs just on the low end of quantity because mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. level, they're the most careful. They'll, they'll, they might make a bad ID when they mistakenly see 18 points in common because that gives them then more confidence. So I, I, I think it's a little bit more complex and nuanced than just once you get up to this many points, then we're good to go. Yeah, no, and I, I don't mean to suggest that it's that simple. Um, there are other factors that we're considering in this in this kind of work, but I, I think the idea of looking at what 
criteria result in examiners that are trained to competency within our organization. When they get those kinds of prints, they're not making errors. Then I think you can use that as a driver for policy. Right. Yes. You know, like quality control. Yep. And and I'll I'll go the step further and say and I I know I we've talked about this but if you can tie that into the likelihood ratio as opposed to the number of minutia, then we mm-hmm. have the sense of there when the evidence is this strong, mm-hmm. these are the error rates we'd expect, which close to nil if not nil. When they're in the more medium, you know you start to see some errors and maybe like Eric you point out there's sort of a sweet spot for close non matches where it's enough for an examiner to bite. Uh, because they they're considering it, but it's low enough that you know there's problems that they're missing, and then there's a low spot where they don't they they don't bite at all because it's no value. And I think with likelihood ratios, you could easily draw a curve that shows that error rate uh, that the changes over over the weight of the evidence, the amount of features and characteristics and their weight. Yeah, and one yep. of the I mean, we did talk about likelihood ratios. In or I talked about likelihood ratios in my testimony. I also used a paper that you you made reference to in your episode on Bornick, which was the Cedric Newman uh, quantifying the weight of evidence. Excellent. Good paper. Yeah. We used that validation study that they, or experiment that they did, where they took 122 UK crime scene latents that had been identified and had gone to court and they had those same latents searched against the FBI database to get close non-matches. And they confirmed that these, you know, the people that donate that were the donors for the, from the U S data set could not possibly have been the people that committed the crime in the UK. And that experiment was really a great experiment to talk about because it, it shows the highly discriminating power of fingerprints. Yeah. Perfect. And, and Della, that, that's exactly how I've used it in several hearings and trials. Exactly that. Exactly as you described it. It shows how discriminating fingerprints are. Even if you don't know the number yourself, uh, it shows yeah. that even if the expert can't possibly quantify how discriminating it is, it's still really discriminating. Big, I mean, it's a such a great study to use. Bigly discriminating. Bigly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of the other um, aspects of that study that I talked about was the fact that it also illustrates the importance of rarity. Yeah. It's just, it's just not quantity and quality, but it's also you can have a five minutia configuration that is as discriminating as a minutiae, uh, 11 minutiae configuration. So that there really statistically is no rationale for a minimum point threshold, which is how we practice fingerprint comparisons in Canada. Yep. And as you increase the number of minutiae, you can kind of see the data trending upwards, which suggests the more information you have, the more discriminating the fingerprint is. Who would have thought Indeed. it? More minutia is better. Yeah. Well, it, it was especially sweet when you're testifying and the fingerprint in the case at hand has 20 plus minutia yep. that have been, you know, compared and identified. So how did uh, the second trial end up going? I, um, again, just a judge deciding. And what did he decide? Well, he decided that Mr. Bonick was guilty. 
he heard the other testimony that I didn't describe was the verifier. Her evidence was amazing because she could speak to her independence right. and the fact mm-hmm. that she had on um, previous verifications disagreed with a number of original examiners and their opinions. So that was very powerful because it really demonstrated to the court that these verifiers are not just rubber stamping these decisions. It is their own professional integrity that's at stake. And they do not want to make an error on a verification, just like they don't want to make an error on an identification. So they take it very seriously. Excellent. You guys track that? Of, of And I'm, I'm assuming it's like someone says ID and then someone else says, oh, I think it's not quite enough for an ID or the other way around. Uh, and that's all tracked at RCMP? Well, it's it is an individual that tracks it. They they track it themselves. Okay. But what is tracked is if the original examiner and the verifier disagree, then it is assessed by an independent group of experts. Right. And that is all kind of recorded by our quality manager. Right. Well, that was yeah. just to give me an idea that that would be a great thing to track. I mean, when it gets to like the ma- the big disagreements, right, that – you know, that's, that's more tracked and it's more tracked in like the, in the case notes for that specific case, but more of a broader scope, even when it's just the verifier going back and saying, Hey, I think this should really be inconclusive instead of an ID, or I think this should be an exclusion instead of an inconclusive, like just tracking how often, even Mm -hmm. though, and even when the original examiner says, Oh yeah, I, I can see, you know what? I, I see what you're saying there, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even go to the point of a, a QA review of just tracking how often that happens. That could be really valuable information down the road if something like this were to come up and someone's yeah. asked, well, how often, you know, do you just say yes to everything? And you can just show data. Again, we go back to how data is helpful, uh, yeah. that, that this uh, disagreement occurs and we handle it in these different manners. I couldn't agree with you more. It was incredibly powerful in this particular case. That's fantastic. Uh, so one of the things, I, as I recall, and I know we've spoken briefly about this case a bit before, Della, but you guys ran into an issue that we're starting to face now here in the States a little bit is how to present the Miami-Dade statistics. As you said, uh, if you read the the report and, you know, they uh, – the, the main thing for the listener to understand is that in the Miami-Dade study – uh, Pacheco et al. Uh, they include the essentially the clerical errors or what they think could be clerical errors because in trying to be transparent and trying to be fair, they report them as false positives because if effectively they are per finger. If you're going by a per finger count and you say Jones number two and the uh, true the ground truth was Jones number seven, and you're going by finger, then that's technically a false positive. And so because you can't necessarily get into the head of the examiner and they don't have it's a black box study, so we don't have markings, annotations, they have to count those as false positives. And as a result, I think they end up with 42 false positives in the entire study, which leads you to, as you pointed out earlier, effectively a one in 24 false positive error throw on the upper bound confidence interval and you end up with one in 18. These are difficult error rates for examiners to handle when you've got someone coming in saying approximately 
you know, one in 25 times, 5% of the time, 4% of the time, you guys are making false positive errors. That's difficult. But you guys handled that. I don't want to say in a controversial way, but you 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 handled that head on and presented some different statistics. What did you guys do? So we looked at the 42 errors, which in table four of the Miami-Dade NIJ report indicates that those 42 errors were on different source decisions. So those 42 are divided by basically a thousand because when you take off the inconclusives, you're left right. with about, you know, a thousand, 950 ish, right. which gives you an error rate of 4.2%. But further on in the Miami Dade study, there's a table 11, which actually breaks out those 42 erroneous identifications. And 39 of them actually come from decisions where the same source is present. Right. So the, the the person was present on those, they might have written down the wrong finger. Yeah. I, I At that point, all you can say is 39 erroneous identifications were made when the same source was present. And so therefore, dividing 42 by the thousand is actually incorrect. You, you need to consider many more types of decisions. You need to consider the same source and the different source, which gives you an error rate of about 1.14%. And that's, right. we've actually uh, submitted a paper, which should be out in JFI in the next, sometime this summer, that explains that because it's very difficult talking about these numbers over the radio or the air kind of thing. It's much easier for people to follow the rationale when they see the numbers on paper. Right. So, right. What we presented in the Bornick case was not even that error rate. We then concluded that this was only on ACE, and it is in a reasonable assumption that clerical errors will be picked up in verification. So right. we presented out the error rate without the inconclusives as well. And there were, I think on, like it's page 64 or something in the Miami-Dade study, it was noted that in 35 of the 42 erroneous identifications, the participants appear to have made a clerical error, but they couldn't determine that for certain. Yeah. Yeah. Was it 37 or 35? I think it was 35. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Because even they had a lower number than, like you said, same source versus different source. Yeah. So the number that we presented from the Miami-Dade study was an error rate of 0.19%, which is very similar to the Black Box study error rate of... Absolutely. Yeah. And that would be three out of 950 or something, right? Yeah. And again, different ways to calculate the the statistics. Yes. Yeah, you have to have a look at the paper. It clearly explains how we got that number. And I think it's very logical and it, you know, it's something I was prepared to defend in a court of law. Sure. Uh, Where where did you guys submit that paper? To the Journal of Forensic Identification. Interesting. Because one of the things, of course, with the Miami-Dade studies, it's not been submitted to a journal yet. It, you know, it has the NIJ report, which I've gone on air and said several times. I question their thoroughness of their peer review and their ability to make the authors actually change anything. 
That said, I'd like to see the Miami-Dade study published in an actual peer-reviewed journal going through a rigorous peer-review process. Ironically, your article talking about the statistics will have gone through a peer-review process. Yeah, it was actually a very thorough peer-review by JFI. We had a couple of reviewers' comments the first time round, and we responded to those, and then a third reviewer. So I think the, the journal was very thorough. In uh, in Good. its approach, yeah. No, I, I look forward to seeing that because, as you're right, these are these are nuanced issues, but important issues. Because I mean, you've gone from what would you say zero, roughly zero point two percent from practically twenty or four percent uh, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's a fingerprint examiner listening that would be comfortable with their discipline if they believed in a 1 in 18 error rate. Right. Yes, correct. Uh, We we might as well be doing eyewitness testimony. Yeah. (laughs) For us, it was... And and doing quite well for eyewitness. (laughs) For us, it was important to describe to the courts and also to publish for the practitioners that are doing this work across the country, across North America, that... This is this one in eighteen error rate is completely incorrect. Right. Yeah. And, and it and, should be addressed. And hopefully the all the you know bunch of listeners out there will, you know, make sure to read that and internalize that paper you guys have coming out so that when they're asked about one in eighteen, then that can just be a kind of a go to paper of how to explain yeah. A different way, yeah. more appropriate way to uh, to to crunch all the numbers. And for sure, it was used, like Dr. Cole did quote that number in his testimony a couple of times. And the defense submission at the end of the trial, that number was also thrown out. Of course. <laughs> so it, of was, course. it was right. really important for us to take the time, explain to the judge... Where, where the error was, why fingerprint examiners disagree with that number, and hopefully, you know, just kind of leave, leave him with a more clearer understanding yeah. of of the error rates in our practice. Yeah, and, and I will say with respect to the Miami-Dade study, I, I appreciate the difficulty that they found themselves in because I, I had done a very similar study. In fact, the Miami-Dade study was a large-scale version of one I had done internally at the Minnesota State Crime Lab, the, the BCA. We had done six examiners. They did you know 100-some. And it was basically the same sort of design and study. And I appreciate that it's it's so difficult when you, A, have a searching study, and because it's not one-to-one like the black box FBI study, mm-hmm. you've got one-to-multiple, and it makes the statistics so much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And on the second hand, they were trying to be as fair as possible in reporting the errors without making it look like they were too biased or making it look like you know they're trying to... Uh, something that I encountered with a previous study with Casey Wertheim, where we tried to ad hoc explain clerical errors versus true false positives, and you land yourself mm-hmm. in this very difficult position as a researcher and author going, well, okay, 42 errors were made, but look, I think only 39 of them were really errors. Mm-hmm. You know, or 39 of them were, were not really errors we're concerned. Probably three. And then you, you're just going to land yourself in this a, a huge target by all these critics who go, well, you can't do that. It's it's all ad hoc, post hoc. You know, it's just 
now you're changing the numbers and I appreciate the difficulty that they were in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And their paper was wonderful in so many other ways. It was very useful and in, enlightening. It was just this unfortunate, the way that that data was presented in table four, and then it seemed to be contradicted in table 11 that, mm. you know, and PCAS didn't see that. They, they just didn't pick yeah. up that issue. And then they compounded yep. it by framing it as a one-sided competence interval. No, I, I mean, it, because frankly, from a statistical standpoint, we can ask uh, Mr. Hockey about this too. <laughs> I mean, it, it's an, it, if you give a latent print and you give a known print that's from a different source and a known print from the same source at the same time, and they say it's from the different source, and even though the same source was, was right next to it, was it a clerical error or not? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because if you present them with two, especially if both of the knowns are very similar, you know, one, of course, being the true source and one not. Yeah. Now, yeah, as a statistician, how, how do you calculate whether or not they made a true error if you don't have the documentation? Because then you can see what they were really looking at. Yes. And that's what makes it so complicated because you guys are essentially not counting in if the true source was present, but suppose that one of the non-sources presented actually was a close non-match. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no... And this is why the Mammy Date authors, I think, took the approach, well, we can't tell, so we have to present it both ways. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't have an issue with that argument, but I think the concern we had was with this initial miscalculation that they didn't consider yeah. all the different decisions. Like, they only considered 953 decisions when they should have been considering 3,687. Makes You know, that significantly changes your error rate. It does. It, it's 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 very complicated when you have one versus many fingers and individuals. Yeah. It's, it's a much more complicated problem. Yeah. And that's, that is more like real life, though. Yes. But when you get down to, you know, if it was kind of an even split where about half of the, the uh, false positives were on same source and half were on different source, then maybe, you know, it, it's be harder to source out. But then you have to start looking into it when there's this just you know, statistically, you know, significant difference in the number of false positives on those same uh, source sets versus the different source sets, you know, the 39 versus three, Mm -hmm. Uh, that should kind of prompt you to kind of, okay, well, hold on, let's, let's take a little closer look at what's going on in here. Because it, some, you know, something else is going on and uh, it's you know much more likely that it's not just a false positive. It's something else going on that's influencing this. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great point. And I know Cedric Newman is writing a paper on this, too. And you're exactly right. They're looking at a statistically significant difference under different conditions and going, hold on. If it's this effect, it should be fairly uniform across these conditions and it's not. So there must be another explanation going on here, which the most obvious one would be clerical error. Mm-hmm. And okay, so moving on a bit. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Del. Well, I, w- I was just going to say the other thing that we emphasized in, in the court was that this was also incomplete practice, right? These error rates are only talking about the original examiner. Yes. They don't consider yes. verification. And, um, right. You know, Dr. Cole, under cross-examine, did agree that verification was likely to reduce the error rate for, you know. So that was, I think, uh, a good point. That's that's barely moving off that uh, that ledge there. 
likely to possibly re- reduce, not not you know, like you know, basically almost eliminate it, but just possibly reduce it. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll still give him credit there because, I mean, even in his paper, More Than Zero, he talked about how having multiple examiners didn't do anything for those, you know, for those erroneous IDs. So I, I'll give him that, uh, which, uh, Della, you wouldn't know this, but we just had Simon Cole on as a guest oh, in a fantastic. previous episode. So this will be a nice little uh, point counterpoint, <laughs> and uh, we got Simon's viewpoint on some of this. But uh, why, don't, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Simon's testimony in this case, which didn't come up in our last ep- or our episode with him at all. So okay. why don't you talk a little bit about what you observed and the issues that he had? Because, you know, he um, when he first arrived on the scene, he had a very almost shotgun blast approach to Yes. The issues in fingerprints, but now he's really refined his arguments to a laser point on specific issues. Yeah, he. We very fortunately we were able to. The defense shared Dr. Cole's expert report with us, so we were kind of aware of the things that he had concerns with, which of course were mostly to do with the original trial. So one thing he was concerned about was the friction ridge analysis report that it conveys an exaggerated sense of certainty um, and didn't really acknowledge that there is a possibility of error. He Obviously, he was talking about the trier of fact should be made aware that errors in fingerprint analysis do occur, which, which we had done, um, mm-hmm. and that their claims of zero error rate should be prohibited, which I mm-hmm. think we all agree with and has not been has not been part of the practice in Canada ever since I can remember. He was also concerned about contextual bias as a result of the APHIS search. Oh, okay. Um, okay. In this case, it was the defense lawyer that raised the issue of APHIS. You know, obviously, a fingerprint examiner will not speak about where they got the fingerprint that they're comparing. They obviously can speak about how they got the latent, but they're not going to speak about how they got the known if it's going to be prejudicial to the sure. the person that's being tried. Um, but th- in this case, the defense raised APHIS because they were concerned that you know some unfortunate individual might be plucked from the database and falsely accused and tried. Um so it, let me ask real quick, uh, in the Canadian APHIS system that they searched, it, was it a nationwide system or just a yes. BC system, nationwide? Yeah. And then in that database, is it just arrestees or does it also include uh, all the Mounties and you know anyone else who's printed in, this, in the country? It is, to my understanding, it's a criminal database. So it only Got has it. people convicted and obviously mm-hmm. unsolved I think there's 4.5 million 10 print um, records. For, for the entire country? Yeah. 4.5 million 10 print cards. It, yeah. The, you know, for the entire country. <laughs> well, maybe I've got the number wrong. You, you got me worried now. Uh, well, no, it, 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 that would just fit with how safe, friggin' safe Canada is because <laughs> I think we have about 4.5 million Minnesota and we're a relatively safe state. That's we got about the same okay. okay, let me check my numbers. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> but I'm okay. All right. I, but I, I've heard this in other countries. I mean, in Switzerland, over 50 years of criminal history, I think they have only, uh, you know, something like 
less than a million fingerprint cards and not all of them are even criminal history. Some of them are refugees. And so I, you know, this is just how, how sad the state of affairs is in the United States. We're a bunch of criminals. <laughs> well, I, I, granted, uh, you know, our database about, again, about the same size also includes any applicants. So anyone who has applied to be a teacher or cop or, you know, okay. anything. So. Yeah. I don't think that. Um, and I'm Minnesota. Oh, but, um, in any case, um, you, you know, most, you know, Canada's is mostly just empty space, you know. <laughs> and very nice, friendly, polite people. Well, the, 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 the trial God. here occurred in, in the town of Surrey, you know, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that, no, that's fantastic. I, 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 I truly hope it is 4.5. That, that, that's great. That's so great. So I guess. One thing that Dr. Cole was concerned about was institutional bias because in Canada, because of our geography, we have a large areas to cover and rural mm. communities. So by far the most common uh, structure is to have police officers that recover the evidence from the crime scene and also do the comparison. So his concern was examiners are police officers, so they're going to be biased. Mm. And we've, we have thought about this, you know, like both of you, your civilian members working for a laboratory that provides a service to the police. Right. So you have right. that arm's length, you know, just in the structure of your work. So our members are trained to be aware of that, to try and reduce their exposure to information from the investigation. They have a different reporting structure. They're not under, usually under the command of the investigator. So we're trying to sort of think of ways to give the court some awareness about those reporting structures and that the individual has their own responsibility in maintaining an open and firm approach to their work and that that's their ethical kind of code. But that is a right. challenge because of how we're structured. One thing that was interesting to me was that Dr. Cole did acknowledge that SWIGFAS guidelines are the closest thing that we have to best practices right now because we had used the SWIGFAS quality table and sufficiency graph in our kind of assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was you know, that obviously that was a good thing to hear that until OSAC comes out with new standards that SWIGFAST is a good best practice. Um, and he did also in a final um, under cross-examination, he did agree that PCAST appears to be asserting that validation of fingerprint analysis has been established, yeah. which is kind of where we started, right, with that something that has been very important for him in his writings over the past 15 to 20 years is that there's an independent body to assess, you know, the scientific validity of fingerprint examinations. Yeah. And, you know, he said as much, I mean, Eric was doing the interview with him and, you know, really sort of tied him down and basically said, you would agree that fingerprints has really advanced a lot and come a long way and taking these challenges seriously and he agreed. I mean, he absolutely agreed that fingerprints is probably one of the best examples of improvements in, in forensic science in the last 20 years. Yeah. And you know what? I think we have to give him some credit for that. I agree. I totally because agree. I was, I think it was back in thousands, the early 2000s, mid 2000s. I appeared 
at a conference, the Canadian Identification Society conference, on a panel with uh, Dave Ashbauer and Simon Cole. And that was the first time that I read, you know, I read his book, Suspect Identities. And, you know, I think he made some very fair, rational arguments. And I think those, you know, those things we have striven to address. Right. I I don't mind criticism. I just want it to be fair and balanced, which is my problem as I've complained on the podcast with like the Habers, for example, who in 20 years have never said a single positive thing about fingerprint advancements. Like every advancement has always been not enough, not sufficient, doesn't tell us anything. And Simon at least has adjusted over the years refined his argument, said, okay, well, you made this advancement, but we still have this issue. And to me, exactly as you point out, I can respect that. I don't mind a criticism as long as it's fair and balanced and intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Della, as we sort of wrap things up here, I mean, ultimately, I mean, the, the, the punchline is, right, the judge admitted the evidence and uh, allowed the fingerprint evidence and uh, he, he was found guilty. That's it in a nutshell. Did he comment at all on the testimony that he heard? Did he go in any depth about, you know, what he heard or how that affected his decision? Or was it just a simply, here's my, here's my decree? No, he, he did acknowledge that he had heard, I'm not sure how to express this, but good quality evidence, I guess, that he appreciated. Thoughtful evidence. Yeah. And he appreciated the testimony of the fingerprint examiner and also the two sort of expert witnesses for the defense and for the crown, uh, Dr. Cole and myself. Um, And he felt that it was the high quality of the impression, really. And I I did quote quote quite a lot from uh, Christoph Champard's. Um, his paper, Fingerprint Identification Advances Since the 2009 NAS Report, you know, when we talked about when the mark is rich in information, the risk of bias is limited. Mm -hmm. So he he really liked that kind of, you know, yeah. Which which Um, is in in ETL drawer studies as well. I mean, that's a clear trend that the, the effects of bias happened in the more limited, difficult comparisons. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree, Della, and just, you know, from your, you know, sort of, uh, you're inside the group, but if if you will, you've admitted you're not a practitioner. Wouldn't you agree to all the listeners out there that in these days, and even what this judge sort of commented on, that if they hear this, we've done these studies, the error rate is very low. It's not zero, but it's very low. And when this is done by a competently trained examiner following standards and procedures and documenting their process in a transparent manner, that judges and triers of fact are going to support that more than what our traditional way of testimony, which was, we don't make errors, we're perfect. We, it's impossible to make an error. If two trained examiners follow this process, they will always reach the same answer. All that stuff that we were trained on, if you testify that way today, you're more likely to get into much more trouble and, and lose all credibility. That this fear of, well, if I even open the door to the potential of error, the potential that I might have made a mistake or whatever, any limitation, that I can't, I'm not allowed to do that. But actually, in today's testimony, 
that's exactly what you should do and is more credible. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, one of the things we're doing in the RCMP is we, we have our internal certification program. Mr. Hockey is going to be Sorry. talking to our fingerprint examiners. You just cannot not, stop, not, not laugh when I say that. Um, he's going to be talking to our practitioners and giving them some statistical education so that they can understand these error rate studies and they can appreciate what, um, yeah. you know, what was going on in the Miami Dade study. And it's <laughs> I, not I, to make them go on. No, I'm, I'm laughing because I went to the Canadian police college at the request of some very insightful, progressive RCMP folks like uh, uh, Jean... Uh, Sagan. Jean Sagan and uh, David uh, Ricard. Dave Richard. Yep, Richard. Uh, yep. Yeah. They, they had brought me in and I was teaching these, you know, newbie RCMP folks about error rates and statistics. And I remember very clearly some angry French Canadian <laughs> RCMP <laughs> raising their hand and one of them going, why the hell are you making us learn this? This is irrelevant. I'll never need to know this. This is silly. I'll never have to understand these statistics. I'll never have to talk about these studies. Why on earth would we be spending three hours talking about this? So it's so yeah. great hearing that, again, they understand now, and that was in 2011 or 12, you know, five, yeah. six years later, that, no, this stuff is very, very relevant. Yeah. And I have to make a shout out to Dave Rashad because he was a um, really key player in sort of the development of our strategy. And, oh, wonderful. and they, yeah, he's such a great guy. He is. He's so knowledgeable. And, and a talented you know, artist. Have you ever seen his artwork? Yes. Oh, he's so yes, talented. I, he's amazing. <laughs> Well, he's he's quite a character too, and yeah. uh, he came to um, the New Westminster. That's where the trial was held in the mm. Supreme uh, BC Supreme Court for the duration of the trial. He sat through all of the testimony, and he's written an expert witness guide, which oh, is really really good. It's going to be really helpful for. Canadian practitioners. It's going to be published in Identification Canada. Brilliant. Um, and they've really changed what they're teaching at the college. They're really evolving. Yeah. At the Canadian Police College, they're, you know, CSI picks, which is a fingerprint enhancement and note taking uh, program. And gyro. Yeah. Yeah. So all these wonderful tools now that, um, Good. have been developed to improve the practice, right? That, I mean, you know, that's why these challenges are important. They make us progress. They make us better. They evolve us. I mean, it's, I, I know examiners, all they do is complain, oh, my God, I've got this terrible thing. I'm so nervous about this. But in the end, it really does push us forward. It makes us better. Yes, absolutely. It really does. Um, all right. Well, uh, Della, I wanted to wrap things up and sort of dedicate this episode uh, to a mutual friend of ours that we tweeted out a yes. very sad thing, uh, Antonio Cantu, who was a dear friend and mentor and colleague and and a um, a pioneer in fingerprint development. Uh, he, you know, he's really known for his work on physical developer and some other techniques and in, in Dane He worked for the Secret Service. I know you've known him for years through the International Fingerprint yes. Research Group. Uh, comments and thoughts on our dear friend, Tony? 
Well, I was really sad to hear of his passing. He certainly was uh, an amazing human being. He was. He's always so so generous with his time and his concern for the new generation. Like yes. he really took time to listen and to you always felt a conversation with Tony that you were even if you weren't making grandiose statements that he really valued your contribution. Yeah. And yeah. he would always whip out a napkin or the back of an em- you know an envelope, scribble down reaction mechanisms and yeah. stuff. He was just so enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, that's, uh, it was his passion, his passion for science was infectious. He's a guy that you yes. want to have a beer with or a glass of wine. Yes. Talk about anything because he always smiled. He was so energetic. And everything was just exciting and interesting to him. I just, I love that about, I love that about people, you know, I just yeah. who, no matter what mood you're in, their passion and, and their excitement is truly infectious. Yeah. And I, I mean, Tony was just one of these gentle, humble people and he was truly accomplished in his professional life. He was a pianist. I mean, he was a, a Renaissance man. Yeah. And I really will miss him. Yeah, in, 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 indeed. I, in fact, I wasn't aware that he was sick. This was a bit sudden for me, so I, I'm not even sure of the circumstances. But I just saw him a couple me of years either. ago, and you know, he was – in fact, I had talked to him about coming on the podcast. And he was like, well, I don't know, because he's doing some contract work for Secret Service. And he kind of gave me the – I don't know if my overlords will allow that. <laughs> that <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that was the last time I saw him was just a couple of years ago uh, talking to him about the podcast. And because I wanted him to come on and talk about his research and his work and physical developer and, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he was in good spirits and he didn't, you know, seem ill or anything. So, again, I don't know the circumstances, but, uh, yeah, he just passed away the, uh, the, was it July 2nd or 3rd? June 29th. Oh, no. June 29th. I didn't hear about it. Yeah. Yeah, I heard from a colleague at the from the Netherlands who was in contact with him uh, by email just early June, and he didn't seem to have any health issues at that time. So it's very sad. Oh, too very, sad. Very sad, and again, um, he'll, he'll be missed, uh, and his contributions are... Examiners probably don't realize that they are using some form of his contribution to the profession. If they do any latent print development, they're likely using some form of his contribution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great guy. Del, I want to thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. You know, it, it it really is a technological marvel that we can get Arizona, Minnesota, and Canada all on the the same line here. But uh, thank you for spending your evening with us uh, talking about uh, this case you know, all the way back, like you said, episode ten, when we we're first starting off with this uh, this whole podcast thing, it, it's uh, it's great to kind of finally hear that resolution of how everything worked out. And we were genius and right in our predictions. <laughs> you should have taken the bet. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both very much for having me. It's been a it's yep. been a pleasure. Yep. And um, I know lots of Canadian fingerprint examiners listen to your podcast as they're driving to the case, you know, to the crime scenes. Three and- hours in, uh, <laughs> in in somewhere in Alberta. Well, this will be a, this will this will be a good episode to take them most of the way to the next scene. But uh, it's, it was great having you on, and it, it's it's good to hear that uh, that this you know this big challenge up in Canada. 
went well and was you know, well represented by uh, people with the RCMP. So I um, want to go back and mention real quick audible.com again. Um, if you want to listen to books on tape, but without the whole tape thing, just with using your phone, you can head over to audible.com slash double loop to get a month free and a, a free audiobook. So Glenn, um, what, you, you had mentioned a book that you were reading um, that uh, that's also available on Audible. What was that? Yeah, I'm actually reading uh, James uh, Elmore right now, uh, and he he's uh, known for L.A. Confidential. It's probably his most famous book, but he also wrote in The Black Dahlia. He takes all these very famous L.A. circumstances and puts them in the true crime fiction genre setting. He's uh, considered a hard-boiled writer. Uh, he's written a book called Perfidia right now, and it's about uh, World War II, uh, a crime scene that happens, murder of a Japanese family right on uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, and what's going on in L.A. at the time in 1941. So very fascinating to me. In fact, I'll, I'll be tweeting about a fingerprint uh, part of the, the book uh, probably coming up on Monday for our Forensic Monday, Movie Monday Forensics. And uh, there we go. Uh, tweet a little bit from that book, an excerpt. Uh, awesome. Um, and I, uh, I'm into uh, Leviathan Wakes, which is the, the book one of the series that's now been turned into a, a TV show called The Expanse um, hmm. by James S.A. Corey. So this is uh, kind of the opposite instead of way back in the past set way in the future. Uh, <laughs> Mars has been colonized and uh, is at war with the earth. And it's a fantastic TV show if you haven't watched that. But uh, after watching the TV show, I wanted to get back into the books. And I think audiobooks is are the way to go, especially for me doing comparisons all day. Uh, so again, Fantastic. if you uh, want your uh, own free audiobook when you're done listening to the Double Loop podcast for those long drives across Canada, uh, go to audibletrial.com slash double loop for a free month and a free book. Uh, also, the CA Wine Club reminder about that. Uh, I just ordered my first two bottles of wine. Uh, when you check out, use the promo code double loop for that. Uh, if you have any questions for us, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at DoubleLoopPod. Uh, so you know, make sure to follow us there. You can uh, go to our podcast homepage, landing page at RayForensics.com and then click on the Double Loop Podcast button. Our opinions are our own, so uh, they don't represent necessarily the views of any agency we may work for. And you can follow us uh, all the time on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on SoundCloud, uh, where we're uh, hosted. And with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.